You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. A very spooky hello to you all and welcome along to Attaboy Clarence. Been a while, hasn't it? My dearest apologies, I've been super hard at work with recording and editing on The Secret History of Hollywood. What a huge job that's been. Ten months in the making of this episode, and undeniably, the most epic and incredibly complicated episode of The Secret History of Hollywood ever has now been produced. It's in the can, and boy howdy is it long. The finished show will be over 15 hours in length, taken an age to create it. Anyway, you don't want to hear about that, Gubbins. You want some golden age of Hollywood shenanigan-izational goings-on. That's a word, I'm sure. Of course you do. Who could blame you? You're only human. And uh, so let's get on down to it. It's horror-tacular this time round as I present a duo of schlocktastic horror treats. That'll tickle you nasty, as well as a quite simply remarkable radio offering that'll chill you to your bone marrow. May I take a moment to tell you something about Vaseline hair tonic that you will find beneficial to the health and appearance of your hair? Oh, I wish you would. Massaged into the scalp, Vaseline does for the scalp just what fine facial creams do for the complexion. I'm fairly sure that's not true. It cleans and lubricates without irritation dissolving out the surface accumulation of oil and dust. It should therefore be used always before you shampoo your hair. And this applies equally to men, women, and children. Okay, do not take this man's advice. Slapping Vaseline onto your hair will make it waterproof for life. Oh, the world of yesterday and its misplaced health guidance. Then after the shampoo, if you have difficulty keeping your hair in place, brush a few drops on it again. You'll find this two-way Vaseline treatment will contribute greatly to the health and beauty of your hair. Yeah, it'll also ensure that you remain single for the rest of your life. Vaseline comes in two sizes, priced at 40 and 70 cents, and there's enough in the 40-cent size for from 6 to 10 weekly massages, as well as daily grooming between shampoos. Again, full disclaimer, do not rub Vaseline all over your hair, or you will essentially create for yourself a fudge helmet that can never be removed. And in case you take all of your beauty and health guidance from the world of yesteryear, wine and beer should not be consumed with every single meal, including breakfast. Smoking does not make your breath fresh, and serving craft cheese triangles to your dinner party guests does not make you Nigella Lawson. Anyway, on with the show! I can't wait to tell you about the new edition of The Dark Pages with a superb review of 1944's The Suspect, written by Andy Wolverton. I love The Suspect. In fact, I reviewed it with a hard recommend back in an episode called Thriller Seekers back in April of 2020. I love The Suspect, and I'm so thrilled that The Dark Pages are covering it as it's a glorious period noir. 
Karen and the team also present a thorough list of what's coming your way on disc for Noir Cinema, including some great TCM picks, a great feature on YouTube as a Noir resource, a feature on composer Miklos Rotza, great insight into Noir actor Steve Brody, a packed edition indeed. Grab it now at www.allthatnoir.com, where they'll also give you a free copy. Total win-win. I love the dark pages. I was very honoured to be invited onto a new edition of the Switch the Envelope podcast and spoke to the lovely hosts there, Jeff and Corey, all about the secret history of Hollywood podcast, how I make it, what's going on with the film adaptation of it, my working process, all that jazz. We also played a very entertaining game of re-examining the best actor category for the 1940 Oscars. Did Robert Donis deserve to win for Goodbye Mr Chips? Or should the award have gone elsewhere? I think the answer may surprise you. Go check it out. That's the Switch the Envelope podcast. Also have to tell you that myself, Ben, Smokey and Kev have finished a couple of new editions of the House of Hammer podcast. If you don't know, myself and the boys are going through every single existing movie ever made by Hammer Studios. We've talked about 1947's Death in High Heels, a delightful little murder mystery starring no one you've ever heard of, but written by Christiana Brand and absolutely worth your time. We've also talked about 1948's The Dark Road in which a real-life criminal was cast in the life story of himself. Which might sound like a great idea, but he's quite possibly the most horrendous actor of all time. If you're a patron of this show, you have access to my personal classic movie library, and Death in High Heels will be there for you to watch, so do check it out if you have a chance. It's a 44-minute movie, so it won't take up much of your day. Go and watch and listen to The House of Hammer. And very quickly, a very happy birthday to Nick Vickery-Brown, Beth Gallagher, Erin Gambrill, and my dearest Rob Bowman, the man who brought you all those lovely tunes over Christmas. Happy birthday to you all, and get well soon, Tracy Bruce. And if anyone else has had a birthday in the past month, and I've missed you, I am terribly sorry. Do drop me a line, and I wish you a happy birthday too. Finally, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Carry Part 2 is pretty much done. You can hear the first seven hours of this gargantuan epic right now over at Patreon. Just to make sure you're signed up to one of the tiers featuring previews. Yes, the first half of the thing is finished. It's out on Patreon. I am so proud of it so far. You can hear it in all of its glory. Carry part two. Seven hours of it. Have I said that often enough yet? To get it now, go on over to www.patreon.com slash secret. Okay, nothing lights my fire like a trip to Horrorland. For the past month or so, I've been up to my eyes in all things Cary Grant, and it's been wonderful. Revisited so many treasures and swooned all over again, but you know what? The disobedient child inside me has been yearning for some B-movie magic, and when you want to plant yourself right back in there... The only genre to go with is horror. I swung the old search beam over two horror classics this week. Purge the gloss and the romance from the old brain. Give me schlocky, glocky shocks, if you please. (laughs) 
First up, terror comes in fives. Haunted hands, for the love of all things holy. Now, full disclosure, I don't think you can get more schlocktastic than 1981's The Hand starring Michael Caine and directed by Oliver Stone, all about a comic book artist who loses his hand, which then takes on a murderous life of its own. If you haven't seen 1981's The Hand, then I impel you to do so, if only for the sight of Michael Caine's hair, and also for the moment where he actually loses the hand by hanging it out of a car window and having it knocked off by a truck. I love that his reaction to having his hand knocked off by said truck results in him shouting, Ow, my bloody hand! (laughs) Then, of course, we have Bruce Campbell as Ash, losing his hand in Evil Dead 2, all kinds of gloopy fun. And, of course, Thing-T-Thing, otherwise known as Thing, will be a familiar sight to all fans of the Addams Family. But did you know that disembodied hands returning from the grave, or should that be glove? Or even Anyway, hands coming back and doing the deadly stuff has been a cinematic trope that goes way further back than the modern era. Mad Love, for instance, with Peter Lorre from 1935, otherwise known as the Hands of Orlac, had pianist Colin Clive losing his hands, but then having new ones transplanted. Unfortunately, they used to belong to a murderer, though, and suddenly, old Col finds himself throwing knives at people all too accurately. But even handier than that is another Peter Laurie spine tingler from 1946, The Beast with Five Fingers, directed by Robert Florrie, one of cinema's true auteurs, who spent his life elevating the art of the B-movie itself and producing such incredible shadowy hits as Murders in the Rue Morgue with Bela Lugosi. The Face Behind the Mask with Peter Lorre, Daughter of Shanghai with Anna Mae Wong, Danger Signal with Zachary Scott, the movie I told you about on the last episode, and a couple of remarkable editions of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and trivia fans. Florey was the original director of Universal's Frankenstein before being replaced by James Whale. What I'm trying to say is that the man had chops. Something of a B-movie maestro. Love, Robert Florey. The Beast with Five Fingers, which he directed in 1946, stars Peter Lorre, Robert Alder, father of MASH star Alan Alder, Andrea King, whose hair has to be seen to be believed, and the glorious Victor Franson, whose accent I bloody love to hear in the Warner Brothers movies. Julie, since you came, I found new life, a new source of energy, a stronger ambition to live. And enjoyed. I've only tried to take care of you, Mr. Ingram. No, you've done much more than that. You've brought beauty before my eyes. The beauty I've always loved and always sought. I wanna hold your hand. We're in sort of early 20th century, I think, Italy, where Francis Ingram, played by Victor Francena, is a pianist who had a stroke. This hasn't stopped him from learning how to play a black annoying piece of classical music with one hand and falling in love with his nurse, Julie. Don't leave me alone too long. Mr. Conrad will stay with you. I'll still be alone. I'm always alone with everyone. Except with her. Do you understand? Except with Julie. Played by Andrea King. 
despite her massive hair of many styles. Also in the house is Bruce Conrad, played by Robert Alder, a really a weird kind of friend type of guy, who's actually bagged Julie for himself. Oh, and also in the house is Hilary Cummins, played by Peter Laurie, who is Francis Ingram's, get this, personal secretary, librarian, and astrologist. I mean, talk about multi-talented. Now, if you leave, he, he will let me out of his side. I need every minute of the day for my work. I have to stay right here in his library, and his books and his shelves are the great secrets I'm after. Key to the future, it was known only to the ancient astrologists. It's been lost since the burning of the Alexandrian library, and now I... I'm about to rediscover them. If I'm left alone just a little while long, I, I have it. One stormy night, Francis Ingram rolls down the old staircase in his wheelchair and dies. It's all very mysterious. Was he murdered? Did he kill himself? Stop asking me questions. None of it matters, because investigating the crime is a king of all accents. J. Carolyn Nash as Commissario Ovidio Castaño. I want to spend the remainder of my life just saying that name. But, Senor Corrat, I must remind you again that it is unlawful to sell anything here without a license. You mean the American? Yes. But you could not call that selling. After all, I paid 50 for it and received 50 for it. 50? Well, that is a fair exchange. Very fair. But, of course, you are aware of the law that uh, forbids the export of authentic antiques without a special permit. Huh? Macherto, Commissario. I am well aware of every law, and I would not dream of dealing in authentic antiques. The real story begins in the crime's aftermath. Ingram's hand goes mysteriously missing after his death and suddenly begins to appear all over the house. In fact, it seems very much to have taken on a life, or should that be death, of its own. It basically just starts killing a load of people. It's an eerie little beggar of a movie and quite good fun. I mean, the whole first act is a load of junk and could be done away with quite easily. But once Ingram dies and the hand starts crawling around door frames and across carpets and ashtrays and things, it really does kick up a gear. Florrie does a really smart job of blurring the lines between fantasy and reality. I mean, the temptation here is to assume that someone else is committing the crimes and that the hand is just a decoy, right? Well, no spoilers here, but prepare to have your expectations confounded. I like it when horror movies don't chicken out and they actually have a supernatural element to them. Peter Laurie gets third billing here, which is completely unfair. He totally deserves top billing. And by the end of the movie, you too will think so. I also think J. Carroll Nash deserves an Oscar for his performance. And the Oscar for best non-identifiable accent that could come from any country in the world goes to J. Carroll Nash. Please, uh, Senor Conrad, explain that I'm here merely to express my heartfelt sympathy, my, my profound regret, my, my deepest condolences on this unhappy occasion. I will watch anything with J. Carroll Nash. I'd even watch a Kevin Smith movie if it had J. Carroll Nash in it. If you haven't yet been convinced by J. Carroll Nash, then just you wait till the closing moments of The Beast with Five Fingers when he not only breaks the fourth wall, but he does a spider hand joke on himself... Honestly, you'll wet your pants. It's the greatest thing ever committed to film. It's better than the moon landing. 
I really do enjoy The Beast with Five Fingers. As I say, the first act is a horrendous greaseberg of no particular value, but once the horror starts, it's all hand-crawly-geddon. I mean, you have spectral pianos, Peter Laurie with a crew cut, quite simply the largest front room ever seen in the world, hand-burning, hand-hammering and nailing, crypt-robbing, oh, and also spider-hand fourth-wall jokes. Plus, of course, you have Andrea King's hair. Now, I am no hairdresser. But I am willing to bet a sizable amount of money that the hairdresser on this film, one Della Barnes, was a huge fan of psychedelic drugs. I've seen people with one hairstyle on their head. I've seen people with a duo of hairstyles on their head, including my dad. Business at the front and party at the back. On windy days, I've even glimpsed the rare sight of the lesser-spotted hairstyle quartet on a single head, but never before have I seen 19, I counted them, 19 hairstyles on one head before. This hairstyle is the inception of hairstyles. Just when you think you've understood the hairstyle on Andrea King's head, she adjusts her head by 10 degrees and off we go again. It slopes, it spills, it flows into and out of itself. Never before have I seen hair that moves in so mathematically impossible a way. It's like the MC Escher of hair. Don't get high and watch this film. Andrea King's hairstyle might be enough to send you to the psychiatric ward. As you can tell, I kind of like The Beast with Five Fingers. It's self-aware, it's eerie, and it's packed the friggin' rafters with not just a gallery of Warner heroes, but an absolute banquet of the most hideous accent work in all of the world. How could you not want to see 1946's The Beast with Five Fingers? Check it out like crazy. Wind the clock back slightly now to 1943. Now, all you Universal horror fans will be aware that in 1936, Universal produced a sequel to Dracula entitled Dracula's Daughter, starring Gloria Holden as Countess Zaleska, the daughter of Bela Lugosi's Count Dracula. In the original script for that film, Bela himself was supposed to appear in a prologue, but that got scrapped and we ended up with the remarkable film we have today, which is great. Bela didn't officially play the Count himself again until 1948, when he starred in the brilliant spoof Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. He of course played loads of other vampire types, but nothing so close to the Count himself. That was except for 1943's Return of the Vampire. An often overlooked vampire classic in which he took the role of the undead Armand Tesla. No relation to Nikola Tesla or Elon Musk, I think. Here's a clip. This is the case of Armand Tesla, vampire, as compiled from the personal notes of Professor Walter Saunders, King's College, Oxford. The following events took place in the outskirts of London towards the close of the year 1918. They began on the night of October the 15th, a particularly gloomy, foggy night that was well suited for a visitation by the supernatural. The story here is of Lady Jane Ainsley, played by Frieda Innescourt, and Professor Saunders, played by Gilbert Emery, who can't seem to decide on which accent he wants to use. I paid no attention to those marks on her throat last night because they seemed unimportant. This morning, I know better. Well, what then do they indicate? Incisions made by the teeth of a vampire. A vampire? A bat? An animal? No, Jane, not a bat. A vampire. A monster. 
a fantastic something that draws blood from the human body through the jugular veins of its victim. This thirst for blood is akin to all craving for food. They've been doing all they can to get to the bottom of a scourge that's been ravishing through World War London. People keep turning up with severe cases of anemia. Or is it? No, it's not. It's Armand Tesla, a former scholar who was so interested in vampirism that he somehow became one. You know how they say you are what you eat? Well, I guess he must have eaten the vampire then. I tell you, not a soul will ever believe us, but we know this monster exists. Menace. Deadly. Horrible. We must destroy it. But how? A vampire can only be destroyed by driving a spike through its heart while it sleeps in its coffin, or by forcing it out into the bright sunlight, which will cause it to shrivel and perish. We can't see this thing through by ourselves. Yes, we can. A vampire must rest during the day in the soil in which it was buried. But the coffin might be hidden anywhere. Could it? How many graveyards are there in this vicinity? Well, there's the church fields and the burial ground at Old Priory. But that's been abandoned for years. Then we must try them both. And pray for guidance. Yes, Armand Tesla, who is Dracula in all but name, is swooping through London, sucking blood and taking names, along with his best pal, Andreas. Now, I think Andreas is supposed to be a werewolf assistant type guy, but really and honestly, he's a very tall chihuahua. Master, it's night again. Beautiful, dark, silent night. With the fog creeping in. Time for you to awaken, Master. Time for you to go out. Through their bravery and ingenuity and a big old spike which they hammer into his absolute chest, the prof and the lady manage to rid London of the scourge of Armand Tesla. But years later, during World War II, bombs fall from the very skies above and unearth the body of Tesla, still wearing his natty spike through the chest ensemble. Well, the blokes tasked with tidying up all the mess caused by the bombs aren't having any of that bullshit on their watch. Yes, the dunderheads remove the spike, meaning that Armand Tesla can now return to life, hence the title of the movie, which is, if you have forgotten, The Return of the Vampire. See what they did there? Yes, Armand is back with a bang, and so is Andreas, who's back with his bangs. Yes, it's bad hair all over the place of Rama. Before London knows what's hit it, there's only a vampire wandering around, killing people and all that. Plus, he's got his chihuahua butler dude helping him again. You couldn't make it up. Absolute scenes. Master, you have come back. Lady Jane Ainsley and Professor Walter Saunders imprisoned me. Deprived me of life for the past 23 years. It was my curse that caused Professor Saunders' recent deaths. It shall not be a simple for Lady Jane. How will you do it, Master? Through those she loves the most. Come, Andreas. I must find a new resting place. There you will bring the coffin with my native soil. And then, Andreas, I have other plans. Whisper it, folks. This is a better sequel to Dracula than Dracula's Daughter. Now, I like Dracula's Daughter, but that should have been Dracula 3. 
This should have been Dracula 2. I'm a big fan of this film. I like that it wears its batshitness all over its sleeves, and there are at least three different puns in that very sentence. Lugosi is tremendous in this. I mean, I love the guy anyway, but he's another level in this. The way he adds diabolical importance to every single line of dialogue is just beautiful to behold. I swear, the guy would have ordered a pint in a pub with his hand outstretched like a claw. The story in this is really clever. I mean, you're watching a multi-decade saga, pretty much, about a vampire scourge being defeated and then re-emerging years later, a bit like Stephen King's It, the way they have to face that evil again years later. Very clever stuff. And there's a real resonance in seeing the characters from the earlier years older in the second half, including the children who become pivotal to the story in the second act. I can't talk enough about Andreas the Chihuahua Valet either. I mean, he looks so much like my dog, Boris, named after Karloff, by the way, who's a Chihuahua Yorkshire Terrier Cross. It's scary how much he looks like him. I kept wanting to reach out into the screen and pat him, tell him what a good boy he was being. But in the film, he was being a really bad boy. Very disorientating, I can tell you. And for those fans of scungy gore, guess what? This film actually has a few really scuzzy moments too. The whole corpse bit at the film's outset is really icky. But then at the end, when the heroes do some killing, there's a moment that actually put me off my crisps. Let's just say things get fizzy. Who knew? Really pretty gross. And as with the film before, we also get a beautiful closing moment where Miles Mander, who plays the detective of the piece, Sir Frederick Fleet, who spends the entire film talking about how vampires are a load of bullshit and not real and all that, he suddenly breaks the fourth wall. Now, I won't spoil it by telling you what he says, but do make sure you stick around because it ends this rather delightful journey into darkness with a lovely wink and a nod, quite literally. I can't recommend it enough. 1943's Return of the Vampire might seem like one of those low-grade Z-movie trash piles that's totally disposable and not worth your time. Think again. There's tons of joy to be found in the thing. If this was a universal horror movie instead of a Columbia horror movie, then it'd be right up there with the classics. Definitely seek it out. If you're a B-horror simp like me, you'll adore it. Well, when it comes to schlock horror radio entertainment, it's an embarrassment of riches out there, but I've selected for you a rather unique tale from radio's outstanding theatre of thrills, Suspense, a wickedly dark fable, starring a name you're likely to be familiar with, DeForest Kelly, who at the time of starring in this was new to Hollywood, but who would go on, of course, to gain lasting renown as Leonard Bones McCoy in Star Trek. This is a beautifully macabre tale entitled Flesh Peddler, and I won't tell you anything about it at all. In fact, I think Suspense's own intro for this one tees it up rather well. Trust me when I say that this thing is so much better too, with the lights down low and the volume up high. I'll leave you in the sinister and capable grasp of Suspense then, and I'll see you afterwards. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. One of the greatest pleasures we find in this business of keeping you in suspense is the discovery of new talent and of unusual story twists. In what you're about to hear, we think we have combined both. The twist 
You'll never guess it, no matter how familiar you are with that mystical literary device, the ventriloquist dummy. And the new talent? Two young men. Bob Jorn, whose first radio play this is, and DeForest Kelly, a bright new luminary in the Hollywood firmament who is presently being seen as Morgan Earp in Gunfight at O.K. Corral. Put them all together, and you have a strange half hour ahead. Listen. Listen, then, as DeForest Kelly stars in Flesh Peddler, which begins in exactly one minute. sometimes unkindly called. But I don't peddle flesh. I sell talent. Singers, musicians, nightclub acts. And I'm pretty good at it. I've got an instinct for talent. When I find a new act that's really got it, I go after it until it's mine. Only the ventriloquist team of Wilson and Oliver. I wish I'd never heard of them. Then I could sleep better nights. My wife and I were vacationing in the Catskills last summer, and the night before we were due back in New York, a carnival pulled into town. I don't want to sound like a snob, but to me, the carnival is the lowest form of show business. I hate them. But my wife, Gloria, loves them. Since I love Gloria, we went to the carnival. Pete, isn't it exciting? It's just cheap noise. Oh, I wish it had come to town sooner. I wish it hadn't come till tomorrow. Oh, come on, Pete. You might even find some new talent. Here? Why not? Freaks are for sideshows, honey, not class spots. You never can tell. A bearded lady might go great at the coca. I can tell. Right here for the wonder of the midway. Hey, the one and only Alexander Wilson and his lovable little dummy pal, Oliver. Hey, you've seen Ben Benefis before, you say. Uh-huh. Hey, but you've never seen anything to equal Wilson. The remarkable Wilson and Oliver. Hey, don't pass this by, friends. He did go in. Oh, but it's Philip West, a dime a dozen. Come on, I want to see him. Honey, you've seen a hundred just like him. Well, maybe he's one in a hundred. All right, all right. We pushed through into the small tent and took our places on the hard, uncomfortable benches. Wilson was already seated on the platform, a typical childishly dressed dummy on his lap. 
He was a man in his 50s, I'd say, with the saddest face I've seen in 15 years of show business. When the people were in, he suddenly sprang the dummy to life. Shut the doors, shut the doors. All prison accounted for, Mr. Wilson. You're sure, Oliver? Sure. Well, then, say hello to the people. Hello to the people. Oh, now, come, Oliver. You can do better than that. I can? Yes. Well, you ought to know. (laughs) The routine was awful. Dull, time-worn. But for some reason, this Wilson fascinated me. He had a talent all right. His handling of the dummy was amazingly accurate. As the act went on, I began to think that Wilson was even better than the Barker said he was. And he was going over with the house. Wilson had Oliver sing while he himself smoked a cigarette. After a few more gag routines and a couple of neat tricks, the performance was over. And I knew I had to sign the act. I parked Glory on the merry-go-round and then went looking for Wilson. I walked back of the midway through the maze of painted trailers that were home to Carney people. Suddenly the door to one of them flew open and a woman stepped out. A neatly trimmed beard covering her chin. What do you want? I'm looking for Alexander Wilson. Wilson? Why? I'm a talent agent from New York. I'd like to talk to him. Agent? Yes, Peter Harris, and you're... Bernice, it's on the poster. Oh, yes, of course, Bernice. What do you want with Alexander Wilson? I told you I... Who is it, Bernice? Talent agent. Never mind, go back in. Uh, uh, agent? I'm looking for Mr. Wilson. Oh, uh, well, I'm Arthur. Uh, you caught my knife act? You you know, I could pin a fly to a penny of four feet. Don't mind him, flesh peddler. Go away. Go home. Agents are no good for us. Leave Wilson alone. And you know, uh, like I could put out a candle flame with a pen knife at 30 feet, Agent Man. Arthur? And go back in. Uh, maybe he could sell my act. Go in. All right. Uh, Wilson's in trailer 17, Agent Man. Hey, if you ever need a... a Shut up, Arthur. Shut up. Get in there. Forget what he said. Arthur is... Well, he isn't quite bright. You know what I mean? Yeah. What's so wrong about seeing Wilson? There are plenty of acts like his. You don't need him. Well, you've got my curiosity going now, Bernice. I hadn't intended that. But forget your curiosity. And go home. Now. Why? Believe me, flesh peddler, you will thank me for this advice someday. Which is trailer 17? I couldn't see why Bernice was so huffy. It was none of her business anyway. I roamed through the trailers with my cigarette lighter held high, looking for number 17. Finally, I found it. A small aluminum antique set apart from the rest, with a pre-war Chevy attached to it. The trailer was completely dark. Mr. Wilson. What is it? I'm Peter Harris. I'd like to talk to you. What do you want? Well, I'm an agent, Mr. Wilson. I'd like to see you. Just a minute. Yes? I just caught your act, Mr. Wilson. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I'd like to do business with you. Do business? Here's my card. My office places acts on all four networks and all the principal nightclubs. I'm afraid it's out of the question. I, I never play nightclubs. But... Yes, I never play nightclubs, Mr. Harris. Well, could I come in for a moment, explain my setup? Maybe when you... No, forgive me for appearing short, but I... I'm not interested in any offer you have to make. To begin with, I can get you 200 a week. Oh, excuse me. 
250? I'm very tired, if you'll pardon me. Okay, Mr. Wilson. But will you tell me why you want to stay with a two-bit freak show when you could make a small fortune working with me? No. No, I'm afraid I can't tell you. Good night. I suppose I should have forgotten all about it, but I'm not used to the brush off. Like I say, when I see an act I want, I go after it until I get it. And then there was something about Wilson's reluctance that wasn't somehow on the level. As I walked back toward the bright lights and the noise of the midway, a figure stepped from behind one of the darkened trailers. So you saw him. Oh, Bernice. Yes, I saw him. And are you satisfied? Not at all. Just more curious. Exactly. Only fools push their noses into other people's business, flesh peddler. Um, Harris is the name. And only fools get themselves and other people into trouble. Trouble? All I wanted was to offer him a nice fat job, two fifty a week, and he slammed the door in my face. Alexander Wilson cannot leave this carnival. Why? You don't know, Mr. Harris, and you're not going to know. Know what? Stop asking foolish questions. Your curiosity can do a great deal of harm. Bernice, where does the carnival go from here? Really, Mr. Harris, you don't expect me to... Look, I can ask any one of the barkers or set-up men. Ask them, then. All right, I will. But remember, Flesh Peddler, if you follow us to Poughkeepsie, I'll... Poughkeepsie? Very well, now you know. But if you follow us and try to see Wilson again, you are a fool. In just a moment, we continue with Suspense. Who says you can't have your cake and eat it? With our vast network facilities at your disposal, you can hop in the car and get away from it all and still not miss out on any of the exciting entertainment you've been enjoying regularly at home. The latest news, our daytime dramas, the music and comedy shows that fill each evening with joy are all available to you whether you're perched at the top of the highest mountain or are dangling a toe in the edge of the sea. The six dramatic shows that follow each other on CBS Radio every Sunday bring Broadway and Hollywood to you whether you're drifting downstream on a barge or flying high in a sports plane built for two. And the biggest variety shows can be enjoyed to the hilt on a pocket-sized transistor, as well as the huge console radio in a luxurious country hotel. Summer is a time for fun outdoors. Summer is a time for travel. With CBS Radio at your side, summer is a time for top-flight entertainment. No matter where you happen to be, no matter what else you happen to be doing. And now... We continue with the second act of Flesh Peddler. Starring Mr. DeForest Kelly. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Gloria and I drove back to Manhattan the next morning. And two days later, I hopped to Poughkeepsie Local out of Grand Central. The more I thought about Wilson, the more of a challenge he became. I wanted him for my list, but more than that, I wanted to find out what was behind Bernice's strange attitude. Now I wish I'd forgotten about the whole thing. In Poughkeepsie, I checked into a hotel, took a cab to the carnival grounds at the edge of town. It was late afternoon as I pulled up in front of the gaudy tents and booths, waiting for the evening crowds. I made my way through the cluttered midway, looking for Wilson's aluminum trailer and hoping I wouldn't run into Bernice... Agent man, I 
Hey, hey, agent man. Uh, hello. Hello. Uh, remember me, uh, Arthur the knife thrower? I can pin a fly to a penny. Yes, I, I remember you. And you've uh, come for me? What's that? You, you come all this way to get me for your agency? Well, no, I'm afraid not. Oh. Uh, well, that's all right. I mean, you know, like, I've been giving it a lot of thought, and uh, I don't think I could go with you anyway. <laughs> I see. So, I, I couldn't leave Bernice in the carnival. Uh, my sister uh, says carny folk should stay with carny folk. Your sister? Bernice. Oh. Arthur, why is Bernice so... So close-mouthed about Mr. Wilson. She acts as though she's afraid of him. Uh, well, us carny folks uh, stick together, see? Like, we, we don't like other people sticking their noses into our business. Bernice said that? Yes. Arthur, where's Mr. Wilson's trailer? I don't know. Oh, come now, Arthur. Uh, Bernice says, you know... Uh, I know. Bernice says too much. Uh, I, I don't know anything, Agent Man. Well, I have to go practice my knife throwing now. I got to practice every day, you know, you know. Well, it was clear Bernice had given Arthur his instructions, and no thanks to him, I finally found Wilson's trailer set off from the rest. Mr. Wilson? Mr. Wilson! The door to the trailer was unlocked, and it swung open at my knock. Wilson obviously wasn't there, but I didn't think he'd mind if I went in and waited. The inside of the trailer was dim and musty. I left the door open to let in what little sunlight the day had left and sat in the long chair in front of the makeup table. I was just about to reach for a cigarette when I had the feeling that I wasn't alone. I turned slowly in the chair and the back of my neck began to crawl. There on a shabby army cot was Wilson's dummy, propped up against the wall. The steady, unchanging expression of its face with the staring eyes and painted smile grinned back at me. It was weird and uncomfortable to be so close to this lifeless thing. Unmoving, wooden. It seemed so real and alive on the platform in the tent. I tried to ignore it, but I couldn't. I looked away. But I could still feel it there, grinning at me in the early evening dimness. When I could stand it no longer, I got up and walked out of the trailer and bumped right into Bernice. What did I tell you, flesh peddler? Bernice, I... What were you doing in there? Waiting. For Wilson. What did I tell you? Now look, Bernice. I don't like you or anyone else telling me what I can or can't do. I want to see Wilson again. I'm waiting here. Come with me, please. I must talk to you privately in my trailer. Sit down. Well, what's on your mind, Bernice? I didn't really think you'd follow us. I told you I'm not easily discouraged. Mr. Harris, I must warn you again to leave now without seeing Wilson. I don't think you understand me. I'm used to getting what I go after. Mr. Harris. I intend to see Wilson to try to talk him into signing a contract. And you've said so far, all that you've said is go away. Can you give me a good reason for not seeing him? Okay, then why did you insist on dragging me in here? Mr. Harris, can you assure me your interest in Wilson does not go beyond signing him as a client? What do you mean? 
Your interest in Wilson wouldn't by chance be in his past, his private life, and not in his professional talent. I never heard of him until I caught his act three days ago. Mr. Harris, I'd hoped I wouldn't have to tell you this. I didn't realize you were so stubborn, but... Yes? Well, Alexander Wilson lost his mind many years ago. That doesn't disturb you. It might, if I believed you, Bernice. What? I don't think Wilson's nuts. Apparently something's bothering him. Something big, maybe, but it's not insanity. I suppose you know Wilson better than I do. I didn't say that. But a man in my business meets every kind of person there is. The cheats, the phonies, the right guys, the bums. So? So you develop an instinct about people. And my instinct tells me Wilson is not insane. You'll have to try something better to scare me off. Mr. Harris, Wilson thinks he's a murderer. You are trying to scare me, aren't you? If that's necessary to protect you and us, yes. You think he might murder me, too? I don't mean that. Actually, he never murdered anyone. Look, Bernice, you don't make sense. Don't you understand? No. I said Alexander Wilson thinks he is a murderer. He thinks he murdered a woman a long time ago. He's lived with this thought for years, nourished it, until he really believes it. It's driven him out of his mind. Bernice, do you expect me to believe a cockamamie story like that? It's the truth. So don't you see? The only place for him is here, in the carnival, with his own kind. We understand Well, him. hasn't anyone tried to help him, to make him realize He's beyond that... that now. But with us, he's all right. Outsiders disturb him. You haven't scared me off, Bernice. You've got to stay away from him. Why? If anything you've told me is true, it's only half the truth. It's enough for you to know. From you, maybe. Perhaps Wilson will tell me the rest. I've warned you. I will not warn you again. Oh, Bernice. Oh, hello again, Agent Man. Hi, Arthur. How's your throwing arm? Well, uh... Come in, Arthur. Mr. Harris is just leaving. Yes. So long, Bernice. Goodbye, Mr. Harris. When the trailer door closed behind me, I guessed Bernice would start talking her fury out on Arthur. So I moved around to the small window in the back of the trailer to see if I could learn anything more. I don't care. I don't even want you to say hello to him. Nothing. Understand? Well, you know, uh, just saying hello uh, don't hurt, does it, Bernice? I don't want you to open your mouth in front of that man even to yawn. I had to lie to him to get him away from here. And I don't want you saying anything to bring him back. Uh, uh, all right, Bernice. Just pray he goes back to his flesh peddling in New York on the first train. Just as I thought, Bernice had lied to me. I was determined to get to the bottom of this double talk about Wilson more than ever. This had become more important to me than signing him to the usual seven-year management contract. When I got back to Wilson's trailer... Who's there? It's Peter Harris again. Who? Peter Harris. I spoke to you a few days ago and... What do you want? I want to talk to you, Mr. Wilson. Go away. But I've come all the way from New York. I must ask you to leave at once. Look, Mr. Wilson, I'm not a detective. All I wanted when I first met you was to book you into the big time. But now there's something more. I think you need help. You need help badly. No, you're mistaken. Can I come in and talk to you? Oh, good heavens, no. Well, how about having a drink with me before the show? You look like you could use one. Please, uh, leave me alone. Wilson, 
Wilson, don't you see what these people are doing to you? For some reason, you're a haunted man. And this carnival is the worst place in the world. Leave me now. Leave me, please. These people are all the help I need. Leave me alone. I'll be at the hotel overnight. If you change your mind, Wilson, call me. Now I was mad. If he wanted to rot there, go on with the carnival until it wasted away, it was no business of mine. I had a few drinks in my room at the hotel. Phone Gloria that I'd be home the next day. Went to bed. Yes? Mr. Harris? Wilson. Can you meet me right away? Right, right away? What time is it? Well, I... Please, please. I must talk to you. Can you meet me? Sure. Okay, where are you calling from? Uh, an all-night drugstore. Well, where is it? Wait. Wait, no. Not here. Meet me at my trailer. Okay. And please, hurry. It took me longer to wake the cab driver in front of the hotel than it did to get to the carnival grounds. I told the cab to wait and made my way through the dark and tents and trailers to number 17. Come in. What's the matter? Uh, Mr. Harris, I've changed my mind. I, I want to leave with you tonight. Tonight? Well, what's the... Mr. What? Harris, you're the first person outside of the carnival I've talked to in more than two years. You're the first person I've had the courage to approach... Go on. I trust you, Mr. Harris. I can't see why, but I know you'll believe me and help me. I can't live like this anymore. Sure, sure. Now, just take it. No, no, no. Listen to me. Two years ago, I killed a woman. A beautiful woman. I loved her more than I've ever loved anything or anyone in my life. When I tried to tell her how much I loved her, she, she laughed at me. I couldn't stand that laugh. I understand, Wilson. But that isn't exactly justification. She, she for... and her son, uh, she was divorced, were working in this very carnival when I first saw her back in my hometown in Illinois. Yes. I fell in love. Oh, you can call me a rube, anything, but I was in love. I quit my job and followed the carnival for months. That's how much I loved her. And she laughed at me. So I shot her one night. And then I wanted to die, too, when I saw her lying there at my feet. I, I wanted them to hang me, but they laughed at me. They laughed at The you? law, the police, they didn't believe I'd done anything. They wouldn't let me give myself up. Where did you get this crazy idea, Wilson? It isn't a crazy idea. It's the truth. Look, lots of people get lots of funny ideas. They think about something they want to do. And they think about it so much that they, they really believe they've done it. It was real from the beginning. I killed her. I did. But there was no evidence against me. Listen, Wilson, you're not making sense. You listen. He destroyed every bit of evidence. So he could punish me himself. The police couldn't arrest or even suspect me. Who destroyed what evidence, Wilson? Her son. Oliver. Oliver? Yes, Mr. Harris. He's referring to me. A trick? No. Wilson was too upset to be tricking me. 
I wheeled at the sound of his voice, and there in the doorway stood Wilson's dummy, Oliver, a small but capable pistol in his hand. You are just as curious as Bernice said you were, Mr. Harris. Oliver. Bernice told me a lot about you. You had to know. And now you do. No, you're not... You shocked to learn I'm a midget. I must admit you gave me quite a start when you made yourself at home in the trailer this afternoon. But that was... That was me, Mr. Harris. Fortunately, I've already made up for the evening performance. Mr. Harris hasn't done anything, Oliver. Let him go. That depends on you. You see, Mr. Harris, Wilson is no ventriloquist. I guess that's obvious now. It is. Wilson murdered my mother, and I protected him from the police. But why? Why? So the law couldn't punish him. What satisfaction would there have been for me if they just hanged him? He'd been dead in an instant. Is that enough punishment for a man who has murdered your mother? No. He deserved more. And I've given it to him. I've punished Alexander Wilson for years. That's right, Mr. Harris. He's held this over my head ever since. Sitting on my lap at every performance, reminding me night and day... Well, I've had as much as I can stand. So go ahead, Oliver. Shoot. Shoot. Oliver, be sensible. If you pull that trigger there, you're... They, Bernice and Arthur and everyone else. Bernice already knows, and now I don't care if the others do, too. For heaven's sake, shoot me. Get it over with. Shoot me, you monster. Shoot me. With horror frozen on his face, Wilson slid to the floor, dead. And Oliver turned on me pupils of his eyes tiny with madness and his frail little body trembling. I'm afraid this is one act you can't book, Mr. Harris. Oliver. You wanted to know everything. Oliver, now wait, wait. I'm really sorry for your sake. He asked me to let you go, but under the circumstances. No. I'm sorry, Mr. Harris. It flashed by my head and landed quivering in Oliver's chest. A long, gleaming knife blade. There was Arthur in the doorway of the trail with Bernice, his face like stone, watching Oliver crumple the little distance to the floor. Slowly, the faces of the others appeared in the doorway, silent. The terror I was holding back was a physical pain. I walked to the door and stood looking down at the little body lying awkwardly like a dummy now. A lifeless thing, unmoving, staring even with the traces of a painted smile grinning up at me. This couldn't have gone on any longer, I suppose. The police will come now, and at last there'll be an end to it. Go home, flesh peddler, and forget all about us. I went home, but I haven't forgotten, and I'm afraid I never will. It's a delightfully unforgettable little radio play. Very macabre trip. Twisted stuff there from Suspense, starring DeForest Kelly. That was Flash Peddler glorious stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this trip through some B-movie horror grime. Always a pleasure. Just a quick reminder that Carrie Part 2, now available to hear the first half, seven hours, if you're a patron with previews on your reward tier. Seven hours of all new Secret History of Hollywood Storytelling and it's dramatic stuff indeed. Make sure you're signed up at W 
www.patreon.com slash secret. While you're there, grab the over 100 bonus episodes of this very show. And also, grab the ebook collection and the movie commentaries. And how about the weekly invitations to Film Club? You vote for the films and we watch them every Sunday. Plus, as a patron, you now have access to my personal classic movie library, almost 200 movies instantly available for you to stream including the two movies i talked about today plus tons of other stuff including a credit in every single show i ever produce and your very own private secret podcast feed containing hundreds more hours of golden age goodness all if you just take one minute to sign up at www.patreon.com slash secret, or if you can't be bothered to type, just follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, folks, it's been a pleasure to spend some time in your ears. Stay frosty. And until next time, take superb care of yourselves and those you love. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.